8. Uh, well, if you'd like to go ahead and open your Bible up to Genesis chapter 11. If you're using one of the little church black Bibles, you'll find um, our, where Genesis 11 on page number 8. I hope you get there a little bit uh, quicker. Uh, we're continuing, but starting, so continuing on from Genesis. Uh, last year, we went through Genesis 1 to 11 as a church. Um, you can catch up with that, by the way, on uh, YouTube, and we'll also look to make those available via the sermon podcast. But continuing on from Genesis 11, but starting a new series this morning, uh, looking um, at the life of Abraham in Genesis 12 to 25, really following the kind of his life as we seek to see what faith in God who keeps his promises looks like. We've called this series Promise. How much do we need a solid, certain promise in our lives? And as we track through this series, we'll be looking at what faith in a God who keeps his promises looks like. Um, so Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, and uh, I'm just going to read that first chunk for us, uh, and then we'll, we'll make our way through the rest of, of the passage as we go along. Let's hear God's word together. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let me just pray for us as we approach God's word. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you for that hope which we discover and come to know through your word and by your spirit. We pray now as we come to your word that you would humble our hearts and that by your spirit you would help us to hear and not just to hear but to believe and not just to believe but to obey and to trust. We pray for your help on that, Father, in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Few things steady and assure our hearts more than promises that are kept towards us. Few things steady our hearts more than trustworthy promises which are kept towards us. And on the flip side of that, few things devastate us more than broken promises in our lives. Genesis 12, this morning, we see God make the most eternity-altering promise this world that you and I will ever know. One which we are invited here to, to believe in and to bank our very lives on. And the question we might have as we hear this promise, these promises, is how can I receive it and can I really trust it? That's really in some ways the question of this whole series. What are these promises and can I trust God to keep his promises? The emphatic answer, as we'll see, not just of Genesis 12 to 25 and of the New Testament, and ultimately in Jesus, the answer to that question is yes. 
Yes, we can trust God to keep his promises. By God's grace, you and I get to be part of those promises. We get to be part of the promises that God has kept and will continue to keep into eternity. So if you're a Christian here this morning, over the next number of weeks, and in this passage this morning, God is inviting you to see what it is that he has promised you. Just what it is that he has promised you. Who, who has promised you these things and what that both means for us now in the present and then into the, the future. And maybe you don't know Jesus this morning. The invitation for you this morning is to behold this promise and to take up the invitation of this promise for eternal life. Here is a promise that you can really bank your life on. Here are promises that you can truly build your life on. Here is a God who can be eternally trusted. That's what these verses show to us this morning. And then as a church, what do these verses have to say to us? Well, in many ways, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, is the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of God graciously gathering a global people to himself. This is a promise that shapes our going with the gospel to those around us and taking that gospel to the nations. This is where our story begins. It began in many ways back in Genesis 1, but here's where God in a broken world is beginning to gather his people, and here's where our story, both as a universe and a local church, begins. So the response that this passage calls for us from this morning as we encounter it is this, to respond in obedient faith to God based on his gracious promise. That's really what God's calling us to this morning, to respond in obedient faith to him based on his gracious promise. The first thing we're going to see is what is the context into which this promise is given? That's where we begin. That's the first thing we see here this morning together. Often it seems like there is no hope for us. Just a brief kind of catch up to where we are in Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11, we saw that God created a good and perfect world. One where we humans were to live with him and with one another in perfect harmony, obeying his commands joyfully. Yet our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we along with them rejected God's good rule, which led to judgment, curse, and death. And one of the big themes, if you remember, that we explored from Genesis 3 onward was a kind of escalation and domination of sin and evil in the world. Initially, it kind of epitomized by the murder of Cain and Abel, then in Genesis 5 to 6, we saw that humanity reached a boiling point, evidenced in the fact that death reigns and that universal evil is extremely deep. God responded to that through judgment in the form of a flood, yet he showed grace. He offered a fresh start by preserving Noah and his family. But then after the fresh start, we saw that the problem of sin still remained. And that was again evidenced in humanity pridefully seeking to make a name for themselves by building a city, city and a tower at Babel. Yet again, God justly judged them by scattering them and confusing their language. And that's really where we find ourselves in, where we find ourselves as we jump back into Genesis here this morning. We find the nations scattered and under judgment. Judgment still lingering in the air. The nations are scattered. The question becomes, will God once again show grace the way he did to Noah, the way he did to Adam and Eve? 
Will God once again show grace? Will there, is there any hope for the future? And here amongst all these scattered nations, we zoom right down into one family and really into one man in particular, Abraham. Just a note, I'm going to call him Abraham from the outset. His name's Abraham. We'll see his name changed in, in chapter 17, but I'm just going to call him Abraham throughout this time. It's important and we'll get to that in Genesis 17. So we see this one family, we see this one man, and we see this lack of hope evident in their lives through the genealogy that I've just read. The nations are scattered, sin is spreading, and we see again death reigning. We notice here Haran dies in verse 28, and then Terah dies in verse 32. Death still reigns. We see sin in the form of idolatry. Joshua 24 reveals to us Uh, It says this, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. That's referring to Ur of the Chaldeans. Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. This is not a godly family in the beginning. They worshipped and served other gods. In fact, Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran, where they settled, were essentially centers for moon god worship. They worshiped other gods. And even the names of Sarai here and Milcah are thought to be named after the wife and daughter of one of those gods. His family is steeped in idolatry. So Terah and his family are not seeking the one true God. They're serving other gods. Nations scattered, death still reigning, sin in the form of idolatry, and a real sense of hopelessness. We see that highlighted by the detail that we see in verse 30, Sarai is barren. And if we're familiar with Genesis, we'll know why that's such a significant detail. It's not just a painful personal detail. It's a promise detail. Amongst all the chaos and sin of Genesis 3 to 11, God has been offering glimmers of hope. The first big one was in Genesis 3:15 where God promised that an offspring from Eve would crush Satan, and with that, sin, death, and hell. So humanity really, ever since then, has kind of been on the lookout, looking for that glimmer of hope through the promised line. That's why genealogies are so important. Often when we look at our family trees, or people kind of look at family trees, it's to kind of look back to find our heritage, In Genesis, we're kind of forced to keep looking forward through the genealogy for hope. But the line here comes to Sarai, and it seems to stop. No child in Genesis means no hope. In our world today, if we look around that, it really kind of reflects this scenario, these circumstances Life east of Eden, so to speak, is very similar. The nations are scattered and they're fractured and sin is spreading. The author, Christopher Ash, who's written the book around how God is regathering his people, he says this, we live in a world that is fractured on every level, from the family to international relations. It's hard to make and maintain harmony. Every day, the news brings stories of broken relationships, strife-ridden communities, and warring nations. He says the only way that these broken communities, this broken world can be remade, 
is with God. Can't be done without God. Yet, even if humanity were able to live on, in harmony on earth without God, okay, so maybe you think your life's pretty great without God, your life's pretty harmonious without God, he says they would still be scattered by death. The nations are scattered and fractured, sin spreading, and death is still reigning. Still spreading. And it's a painful reality for all of us in our lives. We see sin, just like here, we see sin in the form of idolatry. We see those around us serve other false gods, maybe the false gods of other false religions, the gods of materialism, relationships, power. And that idolatry is rejection of God, and it will be judged. And even as Christians, those who once served other gods, we are still tempted to serve gods apart from Him, to take good things in our lives and make them God things, to worship and obey things apart from God, things that will consume us and enslave us. And we also see a similar sense of hopelessness. Maybe you ask yourself, will my life ever get better? Will this world ever get any better? Can my broken life ever be restored? Who's going to restore it? Because it doesn't seem like I or anyone around me can restore the brokenness and the fracturedness and the sinfulness in my life. And even as Christians, we sing about the hope that we have. We know that Jesus has come. We know that we have a Savior. But we often wonder, when will that hope be fully realized? Sometimes that hope can feel so far off, especially when life gets hard. They need we need God to step in in a big way, in a gracious way. The good news is that the thread of hope that began in Genesis 3.15 continues, but God now gives us more than a glimmer of hope through a genealogy. That's what's so amazing about chapter 12. He gives us more than a glimmer of hope through genealogies. He gives us this great, big, gracious global promise to save and to redeem and to restore and he gives us the first glimpse of the gospel he gives us good news in genesis 12 that's what we see next often it seems like there's no hope for us but secondly god has made a gracious promise to us uh, if you look down uh, chapter 12 i'm just going to read those three verses um, along together. Let's read these together. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So just before we dive into this, I've got a little map up. Um, I think it'll come up on the TV because uh, there's a little bit of geography going on in this passage. And I, and I don't know about you, but um, I kind of really appreciate when you get some Bible maps to help you see what's happening. So uh, this will be helpful just at this point, but also as we move forward. Um, this is where Abraham and his family begin down in Ur. Uh, then they move to Haran. So when you hear in the passage that they move to Haran, they move up to Haran. And then eventually Abraham is called to go from Haran into the promised Land. So we see that journey happening in stages. The, the call that Abraham receives here in chapter 12, he receives here in Ur, and then he with his family make their way to Haran. 
So in these verses, in this call that God makes to Abraham in Ur, we have for the first time the gospel, the good news of salvation for mankind. Not just mercy, not just preservation. Okay, when God brought Abraham and his family through the flood, he promised to preserve them, but there wasn't that big promise of salvation. He offered preservation, but not salvation. But here in Genesis 12, we have the promise of redemption, of salvation, of restoration. Galatians 3.8 reminds us of this. It says this, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. It's incredible, really, isn't it? God preached the gospel to Abraham in these verses. The preacher and author John Stott says of these verses, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole New Testament are an outworking of these promises. This is a significant turning point in the story of redemption. And what condition does God call Abraham? What condition does he call Abraham? Well, as we said, sinful, wandering, worshipping false gods, not seeking God, but God sought him. God graciously calls him, and it's the same for each one of us who know Jesus today. God in his grace seeks us out, calls us out, of death into life, just as he did with Abraham. Reminds me of the song that we sometimes sing together. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. We were wanderers, exiles, east of Eden. God sought us and called us. That's the context in which he calls Abraham. What does he call him to do? Simple, go. He says to Abraham, go, go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house. Notice what he's being called to leave. He's being called to leave family. He's being called to leave his identity. He's being called to leave his security, ultimately. All that's familiar to him, his sense of belonging with his family and with his land, God says, go. All those things that we search for and long for in this life, Abraham is called to leave behind. But... What's he called to leave it behind for? Something so much better. And here we see in these verses, the, the kind of, uh, we'll, we'll kind of bracket it under three headings, the three big promises that God gives Abraham and consequently us, a place. He calls him, uh, he tells him that he's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a place. That land, land ends up being Canaan. I was going to point to the map there, but it's away. <laughs> Can you bring it back up two seconds? He's going to give him Canaan. He's going to give him a place, a home. He's calling to leave a home for a better home. He's going to give him a people. God says he's going to make a great nation of Abraham. We see that in the Old Testament in the form of the nation of Israel. And he's going to give them a great name. Interesting to think back to the Tower of Babel. They tried to make a name for themselves and it ended in disaster. But here God promises to give him and his people a great name. 
And thirdly, he's going to bless them. He's going to give them a place. He's going to make them a great people. And he's going to bless them. Notice it says bless five times here. Blessing is the opposite of curse. So here we see that the curse of Genesis 3, the curse of the fall, the curse of our world is being overridden. The curse is being reversed. Bless, 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 all by his grace. Blessing really means that we would live life as it was always meant to be, in God's presence, under his rule, joyfully obeying his commandments. That's what blessing really is. Living under God's rule and joyfully obeying his commandments. And then we see that Abraham and his descendants receive this blessing and then are to serve as a means by which this blessing spreads to the whole world. And we see too, along with a blessing, a warning of curse. Let's just note that. Warning of curse for those who reject God's people. Because to reject God's people is ultimately to reject God. It's a warning for those of us who don't know God, who don't worship him, who don't follow Jesus. To reject his people is to reject him. That leads to curse and judgment. These promises, people, place, blessing, this is what we were created for. This is what we long for. A place to call home, a a people to belong to, a God to joyfully come under and submit to and obey and be blessed by. All the things that we search for in this world, family, identity, security, blessing, we can only truly find these things in this promise, in the fulfillment of these promises, in the gospel of Jesus, and in the world to come. Uh, When I went to university, uh, I used to go to the library the odd time, I promise. And in the library, I studied in Belfast, and C.S. Lewis is from Belfast. They had a a room in the library um, dedicated to him. It had the two big wooden doors, the Narnia doors. And anyway, so there was a big room, and all his books were on display. But they had one of his quotes up on the wall, and I used to go in there sometimes to to study. Um, And it says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. Abraham was called to go to another land. And even then, as we'll see in a moment, he knew that there was something beyond that. This is what we were made for. This is what we're created for, and our hearts remind us of that, and they rest us until we rest in God's promises. So how can we get in on these promises? How can we become part of these promises? How can sinful, idolatrous, wanderers receive these gracious promises from God the same way Abraham did by faith Abraham received God's promise not on the basis of his goodness or his righteousness but because of his faith in these promises God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness that's what the rest of the Bible shows us And that can be true of us too. In our sin, in our unworthiness, we can receive God's promises 
by faith. Faith is resting in and receiving God's gracious salvation, redemption through Jesus. Just like Abraham, we can be included in these promises. Galatians 3, 6-9 says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Yet we are better off than Abraham because unlike Abraham who never got to see those promises fulfilled but only got to see them from afar, we graciously get to see them fulfilled in Jesus. Romans 4 goes on to say, but the, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham put his faith in the promises. He put his faith in Jesus to come. We get to put our faith in Jesus who has come in time and space to die for our sin. The gospel, the good news which was preached to Abraham and which has now been fulfilled in Jesus is that God mercifully and lovingly sent Jesus into the world. The offspring of Abraham to bear the curse and judgment of our sin, to bear the curse and judgment and death of Genesis 3 to 11. He did that on the cross so that through repentance and faith in him, anyone from any nation can be forgiven, counted righteous, and receive these blessings. Jesus is the offspring God promised to Abraham, that offspring that we were hoping for from the line that goes through Genesis. It's through Jesus that the nations will be blessed. It's through faith in Jesus that you can, and I can receive the blessings of this promise. So the question for us this morning then is this, have you responded to Jesus in faith? Have you, have I turned from our sin and our idolatry and our wandering and turned to Jesus in faith? If you have, then behold the promises that are true of you. If you haven't, then the, the invitation is, is to see the promises that are an offer for you if only you would turn to Jesus in faith today. So what do these promises look like for us now? Well, as we trace the storyline of the Bible, we'll see that for us now in the present, what does people look like? What does place look like? What does rule and blessing look like? Well, play, people looks like the, the new Israel. The Israel back then was a forerunner to the, the, the nations being gathered in. We are the new Israel, both Jew and Gentile believers in Jesus. Galatians 3, 28, again, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's God's people today. What's our place? Well, in a sense, God dwells in us individually as believers, but his place ultimately in the present is the church. That's his nation. That's his people. That's what we're being gathered into. The church. And like Abraham, God's people back then, we are exiles and strangers in a foreign land. 
longing for our eternal home just like Abraham. God's rule and blessing comes to us through the new covenant. We'll go on to say in a few weeks the covenant made to Abraham. Our rule and blessing is through the new covenant. We are ruled by Christ from his throne, by his spirit, through his word. And in Christ, we have received every spiritual blessing. But we still await the fullness of God's promises to be realized. That's why we still live by faith. What will people, place, and blessing look like in the future? What are we headed for? What does home look like? Revelation 7, 9. A great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What was, will place look like? Will no longer be this fallen world. It'll be a new creation, a new Jerusalem, a renewed world. Not just one piece of land, the whole earth. Romans 4 tells us that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's what we're heading for. And what will his rule and blessing look like in the future? We will be before the throne of God and before the Lamb at his right hand in perfect blessing. That's what our faith is looking forward to. And as we await the fullness of those promises to be realized, we're called to live by faith in the present based on the historical uh, certain work of Christ, but still looking to live by faith. And in this time, we're still called to go. We're still called to leave. We're called to be willing to sacrifice and give up, and it will be costly, just like it was for Abraham. We're called to a life like Abraham of being exiles and strangers in a foreign land that is not yet our home. Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. In many ways, we're called to do that. In many ways, God's people, that's the pattern we see throughout the Old Testament, and even now with us as the church, exiles and strangers in a foreign land. Yet we mustn't forget that he doesn't do that blindly, but confidently, and so can we, based on promises, based on Jesus, based on God's commitments. Five times in these three verses, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's the basis on which we're called to go, to leave. And in many ways, it's hard to read these verses and not see the echo of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is how the gracious promises of God given in Genesis 12 are spread to the whole earth. The same call, the same call to go. The Great Commission is necessary for this promise to be fulfilled in the end. For God's gospel to go to all the families of the earth. And likewise, it's wrapped up in the same kind of promises. Matthew 28, the promise to go is bookended by the promise of Jesus' authority and Jesus' presence. Same thing here. The call to go is based on the promises of God. So we go as God's church with the gospel, which contains the great, 
the great, global, gracious promise of God in Christ for the whole world. The question we must ask ourselves this morning is, how are we going? How are we responding to this call in obedient faith? What does our faith look like? What does our obedience to this call look like? That's the third thing we see. Often it seems like there's no hope for us, but God has made a gracious promise to us that calls for a response of obedient faith from us. If you look down at verses 4 to 9, we're just going to read those together. Here's Abraham's response. God says, go. So Abraham went, verse 4, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. God says, go, Abraham went. He went as the Lord had called him to. His faith is an obedient faith. And notice his age. What age is he? 75. He's no spring chicken, right? Maybe in Old Testament terms he is, but he's 75 years old. Let me just say to those of you amongst us who are a bit older, and I'm not going to say what constitutes as older, God's call to go and to obey by faith still applies to you now, just as much as it did when he first called you, when you first came to know him. There's no retirement when it comes to obedient faith. For those of us who are younger, and again, I'm not going to constitute what that means, it's a reminder that the call to go might look different as we get older, but it's still commanded of all of us. And if you're older and you don't know Christ here this morning, now is the time to respond to Jesus in obedient faith. It's not too late to enter into those gracious promises. And notice too how this global gracious plan of salvation begins, who it begins with. A small, dysfunctional family. And we will see just how deeply dysfunctional this family is throughout Genesis. A small, dysfunctional family. So too our lives can seem like that. So too our, our church, the church, can often feel like that. Will often be like that but this is who God uses and this is how God works. Hebrews 11 again, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He obeyed by faith. So what does obedient faith look like from these verses? Well, we are called to follow Abraham's lead. Obedient faith looks like this. It looks like leaving our old life behind. Sin, sinful desires, false worship, 
looks like repenting of idolatry and choosing instead to worship the one true God. That's what he had to do. That's what his family was called to do. It looks like maybe leaving the familiarity, security, and identity of our homeland, of our family, whether or not that means moving across the globe or moving across the town. We do that for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it means moving across the room to your colleague. The call to be an obedient Christian is always a call to leave the familiar, the comfortable, the secure, to obey in courageous faith. It might mean leaving people, places, family, and friends. For some of us, we are to love those things and honor them and obey God's word with respect to them, but we must hold them loosely in light of God's commands. And we do that knowing that what we gain far outweighs what we would ever lose. We're called to choose to live by faith and not by sight. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. It means choosing to keep trusting even when our faith is tested, which is something we'll see throughout these chapters. It means choosing to keep looking forward when it seems there is no future. Continuing to long for that future heavenly city. Hebrews 11 verse 8 goes on to say how Abraham obeyed by faith. And then in verse 10 it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even then, Abraham modeled faith beyond what was in front of him. He knew there was more to God's promises than just Canaan. For us, it means we look to that heavenly city, to our future home, whose designer and builder is God. And that doesn't mean we walk blind, okay? had a conversation recently in the last number of weeks where that was something that was put on the Christian faith. It's a, it's a, how can you really know? It's a blind faith. And even maybe you've had Christians counsel you that in the past. Sometimes you've just got to take the leap. Our faith is based on concrete historical promises fulfilled in a concrete historical person, Jesus. Doesn't mean walking blind. It's a walk based on promises with certain future security bought for by the physical blood of Jesus. It means choosing to worship the Lord among those who don't Notice when he gets there, who's there? The Canaanites. There's people living in this land that is to be his, to be theirs, who do not worship God. And what does Abraham do in amongst them? In some ways it's kind of bold. He builds two altars, not just one, builds two. Builds two altars to the Lord and calls upon his name in the middle of a land full of Canaanites who do not worship God. And in fact, we're probably deeply antagonistic towards the one true God. Isn't that what we're called to do today? And it means being assured by God's promises. Verse 7, Abraham moves into the land full of people who don't worship God, not knowing fully what's going to happen in the future. And there the Lord appears to him. And what does the Lord do? He confirms the promise to give the land to Abraham's offspring. Your leaving was not in vain. Your going is not pointless. Your staying here and obeying me is worth it. I will give this land to your offspring. In Galatians 3, again, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is 
Christ. Again, we follow that line. These promises ultimately are fulfilled in Christ and we get to be part of them in Christ. So this kind of obedient faith not only leads to our own personal blessing, but through us to the world. This is what we get to give our lives to. This is what we get to obey. What greater purpose could we give our lives to than to be the means by which the blessings, the eternal blessings of the gospel are spread to the nations, are spread to our families, are spread to our towns? What could be more worthy than leaving and going and obeying by faith? We will see how Abraham's faith falters, yes. We'll see how it's tested, yes. But we'll see how by God's grace it matures. Abraham will provide us with an example to follow, but much more than Abraham as an example, we will see the God who's behind those promises and the one who ultimately keeps those promises and the one who ultimately sends his son to fulfill those promises. That's what we get to look to. That's what we get to put our faith in. So God has made for you and me, for us, our church, a great, gracious, and global promise. And with it comes a big call, not a small call, a big call to obedience and faith. A call that will, like Abraham, demand everything of us. No casual responses required or accepted here. This is a big call to obedience based on a big, bigger promise. It's a call that will demand everything us and it contains unimaginable blessings for us, both now and for the future. So are we banking and building our lives on this promise, on the gospel of Jesus? Have we put our faith in the one who's fulfilled these promises and guarantees it? Through him, we can know the security and the eternity that this promise offers. So let's respond. Let's respond together in obedient faith with the help of Christ's spirit within us. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that in our sinfulness and in our weakness and even in our idolatry, Father, you graciously have called us, that you have gifted us with faith, that you have made a way in Jesus for us to be part of these promises, to be part of your blessing. Father, help us to respond in obedience. Help us to respond in faith. We so desperately need that help. We so often feel so weak. We often wonder. We're so prone to that. Father, help us to respond in faith. Help us to rest in your promises. Help us to be those who go and who leave, whatever that might look like for us in our context. And help us, Father, to keep looking for that future heavenly home where all sin and curse and death will be eradicated. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.